there's a story of two men who went to the same place of worship to pray. They both went, both prayed, but only one was accepted before God. Though they they both went to the same place before the same God with similar activity, one went away right with God. Why? Well, we learn in the story that though one was viewed by many as this impressive spiritual leader and the other was a despised and wretched sinner, we're told that the impressive religious leader stood before God and man and held his head up high and basically said, God, I thank you that I'm so great. Not like these other men here, who were unjust and unethical, not like this despised and terrible, ungodly sinner over here. He said, I do the right things spiritually. I meet all of your requirements. I fast twice a week, give my money away to the church and to the poor. Thank you, God, that I'm me, a super spiritual giant for you. And I'm adding to that a bit, but that's basically what he was saying there. And we're told that in that same place of worship, the other man stood up and did not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but looking down at the ground, he beat his chest and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. We're told that the miserable sinner was the one who left that place of worship on that day right with God. This is a familiar story to many of you, right? If you grew up in the church or you've been in Christian circles for a while, you've you've heard this story, maybe you've, you've heard this story preached. This is a parable that our Lord Jesus told while he was surrounded by a group of self-righteous religious leaders. And in this parable, we learn that there is a right and a wrong way to approach God. We learn here you could have two individuals going to the exact same place, coming before the exact same God with similar activity. We're told they're both going to the temple to pray, right? And one is accepted before God and the other is not. And the reason why is because more than being concerned with the actions of our hands and feet, Scripture is crystal clear that God is concerned with the condition of our hearts and the motives behind our actions. Though both men went to the temple to pray, the Pharisee did so proud and with an arrogant heart, bragging to God about all the things he had done instead of praising God for his great mercy and grace. In this story that you're going to read this week in your spiritual growth guide, you'll find that the Pharisee used the word I five times in two verses. While the tax collector, the sinner, refused to even lift up his eyes in God's direction and with his head low, he confessed his sin and he pleaded for mercy. Two men, same place of worship, Similar activity, one accepted 
and the other rejected. Folks, Scripture is clear that though it is essential that we follow God, there is a right and a wrong way to do so. We learn here that the outward actions of our hands and feet going to a place of worship, praying to God, mean little to God if the one carrying out those activities has impure motives and an unchanged and calloused heart. We not only see that in Luke chapter 18, but we're reminded of this truth all throughout the Word of God, right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. For the next two weeks, we're going to be tackling a large passage of Scripture. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 40 of Acts chapter 8. And in this passage, Luke tells us of two stories. Two stories of two individuals who come to Christ under the ministry of Philip, but only one demonstrates true and genuine faith, a faith that saves. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at both stories, and I'm going to use these stories to explain to you what saving faith looks like from the Word of God. And the titles of the two sermons are, the sermon this morning is, A Faith That Does Not Save, and next week is A Faith That Does. We learned last week that when the Christians were scattered due to persecution, Philip, who was one of the seven leaders in the church in Jerusalem, chose alongside Stephen to lead them in Jerusalem. He was chased out of Jerusalem, and he ended up in Samaria. And we're told that because the circumstances led Philip to Samaria, Samaria is where he continued his ministry for Christ. And we're told that he had an effective ministry there, a fruitful ministry. We're told that a great number of people responded favorably to his message. Yet, though that's the case, we learn here this morning in Acts chapter 8 that not everyone responded to his message in the right way. Though there were many genuine decisions made for Christ under Philip's ministry in Samaria, there were some who did not. And that is always the case, by the way. Did you know that? There are always one of three responses to Christ and his gospel. There are those who refuse to come to Christ. There are those who come in the right way and those who come in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. We have two of those three examples given here for us in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 40. And the example of Simon the magician and the Ethiopian eunuch. We have an example of a faith that does not save, an example of a faith that does. This morning we are going to focus on the faulty faith of the magician, Simon, from Samaria. Next week we'll look at the faith of the Ethiopian eunuch, the true faith of him. Simon's story is found in verses 9 through 25. Look at verse 9. We're introduced to him told here, but there was a man named Simon. We're introduced to Simon here, and we're told in this passage that it seems as if initially he responds favorably to the gospel, right? To the ministry of Philip. And let me tell you, Simon looked good at first. He did. He looked so good that Philip, a man full of integrity, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, was convinced that he was, in fact, the real deal, which shows us, folks, 
how difficult at times it can be to discern between the wheat and the weeds. Between true followers of Christ and wolves in sheep's clothing. Philip was convinced that Simon was, in fact, the real deal. He received him. He believed him. He baptized him. He ministered right alongside him. And I have to tell you, this story, though sad, does comfort me a bit. Because I, too, have been duped. I have received people, baptized people, who were not believers. And it's, it's real easy in hindsight to look back and say, what did I miss? But on the front end, at times, faulty faith is tough to detect. Simon looked good. It seemed as if he had placed his trust in Christ. He was baptized. He followed Philip in ministry. He believed, he obeyed, and he continued in Christian ministry. There weren't any red flags at first for Philip. But as we study through this passage, we come to find out that Simon was a phony. He was a demonic magician mixed in with true followers of Christ, but he was tough to detect. Jesus told a parable, I just made mention of it, during his earthly ministry about the kingdom of God. Being like a man who sowed good seed in his field. It's found in Matthew 13. And he said, while the men slept, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And we're told that as the wheat came up, so did the weeds. And the servants of the master of the house came out and said, where did these weeds come from? Did you not sow good seed in the field? What happened? Well, listen to verse 28 of Matthew 13. You have this in your spiritual growth guide. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, because we might root up some of the wheat with the weeds. He said, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Later on in this chapter, he explained the parable to them, and he said, the sower of good seed is the son of man, the Lord Jesus, and the sower of the weeds is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. The wheat gathered into barns or into his barn are those who belong to him, and the weeds that are burned are not. Those who are his will be with him in glory, and those who are not will be cast out into the fiery furnace into a place of eternal torment. In this parable, you have Jesus explaining to us the difficulty at times of distinguishing between those who are true followers of Christ and those who are not. That point is clear, isn't it, in that text? Simon was tough to detect. He looked good from the outside, but eventually he was exposed. And how was he exposed? Well, we learn in this text that he was exposed as a phony because he had bad theology. His faith was in a faulty doctrine which made his faith faulty faith. You with me? Folks, it's not enough to believe in something. You got to believe in the right things. You got to believe in the truth. I've had people tell me before, well, so-and-so's okay, they believe in God, or they believe in Jesus. And the question that immediately comes to mind for me is, what God, what Jesus, and what do they believe about them? 
You got to define your terms. You can't just say, I believe in this random somebody out here and be good. That's not faith that saves. You got to believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. You have to know what he's done and you have to be trusting in that work alone for your salvation. Simon showed interest in following Philip's God. He showed interest in being a part of Philip's ministry. He showed an interest in Jesus. The problem was he didn't properly understand the gospel and the person and work of Jesus. He had a faulty faith because his faith was in a faulty doctrine. He got it wrong in three ways. We're going to look at these this morning. One, he had a wrong view of himself. Two, he had a wrong view of salvation. And three, he had a wrong view of the Spirit. First point, he had a wrong view of self. Look at verse 9. We're told, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Simon was a proud man. He thought he was something. And he had real power. He did. It was demonic power, satanic power, but it was real power. And he was convinced that because he had this power, he was someone special, and he told everyone about it. You know people like that? You don't have to ask somebody else if they're great, they'll tell you, right? That was Simon. Simon was Satan's puppeteer. Satan was doing great work through him. We're told in verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with this magic. Well, this is what Satan wants, right? He wants people to be focused on him. He wants to be considered the great one, the power of God. So Simon, under his influence, had a God complex. He, like Satan, wanted to be thought of as being on par with God. And he was performing these mighty signs and we're told that he had captivated the people for a long time. But they eventually, when Philip comes into town, they turn away from Simon and they go toward Philip. And towards someone greater, the one Philip's pointing toward, the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Many were looking to Simon, and then Philip comes into town preaching about Jesus, and they saw the mighty works God had done through Philip, and they heard the message of the kingdom of God and the message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus and they responded to that message. They turned their life up and over to the Lord Jesus and were baptized and were told that after that, Simon believed and was baptized and followed Philip as well. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now some of you read that and say, well, why are we talking about a faith that does not save? He, he believed, right? He, he believed, and after that he was baptized, and he continued on. Why are you bad-mouthing Simon, Graham? Some of you are thinking that, right? Well, why did he come? Remember I said at the beginning that there is a right and a wrong way to come to Christ. We have the reason Simon came in verse 13. Look at the end of it. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Remember the others, they responded to the message of Philip, right? Simon responds to the miraculous works. I think Simon had a, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. Many had turned from him to follow Philip, and when Simon saw all that Philip was doing, he thought, I'm going to join him as well. I'm going to follow his teachings and follow his God so that I can be more powerful. You see, Simon had the wrong view of himself. He didn't view himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. Instead, he saw himself as a powerful man wanting more power. He was a prideful man who wanted God's gospel to make him more impressive so that he could then be more powerful, though, so that he could then be even more prideful, right? He came to Christ proud, which is why, by the way, he did not find Christ. You do not find saving faith through pride. You don't. Prideful people don't find Christ. He's found through humility. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. Heard a pastor once say this, only humble people find faith that saves. So true. Proud people don't see it. They miss it. Simon missed it. He had a false view of himself. He thought of himself as somebody great and powerful and wanted more greatness and power and thought Jesus could give it to him. And he came to him in that way and he did not find Jesus. He had a faulty faith because he had a false view of himself. He also had a false view of salvation. That's point number two. He had a wrong view of salvation. Like we said a moment ago, when Simon saw all that Philip could do, he wanted in on that action. He wanted that in addition to what he already had. He viewed salvation as some external power that he could just add to his bag of tricks instead of a total commitment to Christ as Lord. He did not want to completely scrap his old life and his old beliefs and forsake everything to follow Jesus. To be honest, he really didn't even want Jesus. He just wanted the power associated with Jesus. He wanted to do the miracles he saw Philip do, but did not want to follow the Lord. He saw Philip following. And for that reason, Simon's faith was faulty. Now, how does this apply to us today in our culture? Because there, there, there are many in our society who are wanting to be associated with Christianity, but not necessarily due to the miracles, right? I mean, that's not necessarily the draw, maybe elsewhere in the world, but not here in our culture. And though that's true, get this, there are many in our culture today and in our world who want the benefits that come from being a follower of Christ without having to change their allegiance from their self to the Savior. There are many in our world today who want to be free from judgment. They want to get out of hell free card and even want a self-help, make my life better, Jesus. But they don't want to forsake anything to follow him. They don't want him to be Lord of all. And if they're honest, they really don't want him to be Lord at all. They want to be able to do what they want to do, live how they want to live, but not have to face the consequences that come from a life lived for self. 
Folks, listen, there may be a belief system out there that teaches that, but it's not Christianity. What did Jesus say? He said, if you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself and you got to take up your cross and follow me. You got to take up your instrument of death. Deny yourself. Lay your life down. That's salvation. It's not a magical prayer. You pray so that you can then go live however you want to live. It's giving your life up. Laying your life down. Giving your life over to Jesus. Being changed from the inside out so that you can then live how he wants you to live. That's salvation. But that's not what Simon wanted. Well, there's a third thing we find here with Simon that shows that his faith was, in fact, faulty. Not only did he have a wrong view of himself and a wrong view of salvation, but he had a wrong view of the Spirit. Look at verses 14 through 19. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also,' so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Poor Simon. Boy, he's getting it wrong, isn't he? We first learn here in this passage that it says that word had traveled back about Philip's ministry in Samaria, back to Peter and John in Jerusalem, that the Samaritans had received the word of God, So they go to Samaria to go check these things out. They were probably sent by the Jews in Jerusalem. And when they get there, we're told that that though they saw that the Samaritans had received the word of God, and though they saw that they had been baptized with water in the name of Jesus, they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. But when Peter and John get there, we're told they laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit entered into them there. They received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized by and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now here's a question we must ask as we read this. Why is there a delay of the Holy Spirit here? Well, we we talked about this a bit, right? Back in Acts chapter 2, but let me explain it to you once again, and you can go back and you can listen online to the sermons uh, entitled Lessons Learned from Pentecost, part 1 and 2, to get a, a more full description of this and explanation of this. But I believe this was a unique experience for the Jews in Acts 2, for the Samaritans in Acts 8, for the Gentiles in Acts 10, and for the Jewish disciples of John in Acts 19. The reason I believe it happened like this initially with the delayed coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem is because, one, there had to be this point in time when Christ leaves 
in a physical sense and the Spirit comes in an obvious and powerful way because Christ said that He would, right? He said that the Spirit would not come. He could not come until Christ's work was completed and until He, Jesus, returned to be with the Father. So there had to be this designated time for the Spirit to come in this mighty way upon Christ's disciples. And when He came in Acts chapter 2... He came in this obvious, unique, and powerful way to showcase who he was and what he came to do. And some of you will hear that and you'll say, okay, I'll give you that. But if this is a unique experience, then why do we have a similar experience in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 10? Well, we find out why in this text. Word got back to Peter and John that the Samaritans were coming to Christ. So they were sent to go see if this was true. They were sent to go check it out. And they go and check it out. And they witnessed firsthand that the Samaritans had turned from their sin. They were trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. But they had yet to have this Acts chapter 2 experience. God waits for Peter and John to get there. Then he sends his Holy Spirit to fall on the Samaritans. And he does the same thing in Acts chapter 10 in Caesarea in the house of Cornelius. Peter and Jewish witnesses go there. They witness this once again. And the reason why is because God wanted them to then go back and report to the Jews and say, you'll never believe this. The Samaritans and the Gentiles got the same thing we got. That's exactly what Peter does after Acts chapter 10. He goes back in Acts chapter 11. The circumcision party are waiting and they're like, what have you been doing eating in Gentiles' houses? And Peter's got all these witnesses, smart of him to bring those. And they say, you'll never believe this. The Gentiles got the same thing we got. And they explain the whole story in the first part of Acts 11. And then, after hearing that, the Jews say, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God's doing a work here. You see, at this time, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't like each other very much. And that's putting it lightly, right? And if Peter and John had not witnessed the Holy Spirit working in the same way he worked with them, then the Jews might have viewed the Samaritans as being inferior and second-rate Christians because they already viewed them as inferior and second-rate Jews. If the Spirit would have come upon the Samaritans right away, and Peter and John would have remained in Jerusalem, the two groups would have remained separated and segregated and segmented. But instead, what God does is he brings these groups together. You see, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is meant to bring unity. Do you know that? How ironic is it then that now this doctrine, or what I believe to be misinterpretations of this doctrine, have divided us. What we're reading here in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 10, are the transitions from the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles being made one church, being made one in Christ. We need to be very careful to not build our our doctrine of the Holy Spirit from these first few chapters in Acts because here we have recorded for us the transitions of these segmented groups to being made one church. It's a transition that's taking place. It's later on 
in Paul's epistles that we have recorded for us the flow of life from the established church. Later on, Paul says, everyone who is in Christ has been baptized in the Spirit. It's not a separate, delayed experience for some, a one-time experience for all who trust in Christ alone for salvation. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, Paul wasn't just talking about the super spiritual Corinthians here. And for those of y'all that remember when I preached through that book, they were few and far between. For those of y'all that remember Jim's sermon a few weeks ago, this was one messy and messed up church. Yet Paul says all of them through Christ, had been baptized in the Spirit. Okay? Now back to the Samaritans here. That's a long side note, I know. But it's important that I go there because the text goes there. But notice here, Philip, Peter, and John, and others are witnessing this great work of the Holy Spirit. And notice who else witnessed it but did not experience it. Simon. Why? Why did he witness it but not experience it? Because he wasn't a believer. He he thought of the Holy Spirit as a power to be bought. In verse 18, we're told that he offered the apostles money and said in verse 19, give me this power so that I can grant people this power, the power of the Holy Spirit. He was impressed with Philip, and then when Peter and John stroll into town, he's even more impressed with them. He then flocks to them because he viewed them as being the the cream of the crop, the most powerful. And he asked them, how much for your power? How much do I need to spend to get a little bit of this Holy Spirit? You see, he didn't want the saving, life-sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. He wanted the supreme power of God so he could use it for his own personal gain. And by the way, Those of y'all who took Christian history with Brett uh, last winter, there was a term that he used called simony. Do you remember that term? And it refers to the buying and selling of ecclesiastical power. The church had gotten corrupt and many people were spending money so that they could move in to these, these areas of influence in the church. A lot of corruption followed after that. Do you know where that word simony comes from? Simon, that's what he was trying to do. He had a low view of God, a low view of the Spirit. He viewed him as someone who could be bought and used like a bag of tricks. Folks, let me let you in on something about God. Nothing he has is for sale. Do you know that? Because you don't have anything he needs. You may think you do, but you don't. He has it all, and he has chosen to freely give of himself to us, to those who simply come to him and believe and trust in him and show faith in him, demonstrate faith in him. Don't believe me? Just read Romans 3 and Romans 5 and Romans 10 and Ephesians 2 and John 3. Said it time and time again. But it needs to be said time and time again. There is nothing that you bring to the table that is worth anything to God. 
No amount you can give. No services you can offer. If you say, God, I would like to give you blank for blank, whatever you put in those blanks is ridiculous. You've got nothing he needs. You can't buy salvation from God. You can't earn it, but you can have it from him for free. Romans 5, 15 through 17, Paul refers to salvation as a free gift five times in two verses. It's a free gift. And in the next chapter, Romans 6, 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't buy grace. It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned. It cannot be bought. Jesus paid it all. Simon missed this, and he missed salvation. And when Peter heard about him offering to buy the Holy Spirit, Peter gets mad. He gets upset about it. Notice what he says here, strong words. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now forgive me for saying this, all right? But let me just tell you what Peter is actually saying here in the first part of verse 20. He's basically telling Simon to H-E double hockey sticks with you and your money. That's exactly what he says here. He does. May your silver perish with you. That's the fisherman coming out in Peter there, isn't it? Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon may have looked good initially on the outside, but he was rotten on the inside. His heart was not right before God. So what is he to do? Peter tells him in verse 22, he says, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter calls for him to truly repent. Turn from your sin. Seek forgiveness in Christ. He says, I see that you're in a gall of bitterness. You're in the bond of iniquity. He basically says, Simon, you need to repent. You need to turn your life over to Jesus because you are wrapped up in a rotten kind of evil. And notice Simon's response. He says in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, some say Simon repented here. I don't see that at all. I I see a man who doesn't want to face the consequences that come from a life lived for self, but not a man who is truly repentant. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know what worldly grief is? It's a hatred of consequences. Godly grief is a hatred of sin. And there's a huge difference. Simon didn't want to have to deal with the consequences that came from his own sinfulness. But he wasn't really upset about his sin. He just didn't want to face the consequences. And and notice as well that he viewed Peter and John as being his priests. He said, you guys pray on my behalf. Put in a good word for me. He he tried to go through them because he viewed them as being powerful enough to do that, right? 
But they weren't. Paul is clear. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We've got to go through him to be forgiven. And I love the way this passage ends. Look at verse 25. It says, Now when they had testified and had spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I love that. It says, When Peter and John finished preaching, they returned to Jerusalem. But before they did, they continued preaching the gospel all throughout Samaria. So when they finished preaching, they continued preaching until they returned to Jerusalem. And guess what they did there? They preached. They preached the message of the gospel everywhere they went. I love that. After explaining the desperate condition of Simon, Luke ends by highlighting the great faithfulness of the apostles. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is this. Where are you? Where are you spiritually? Do you just look good on the outside to other people? Or have you been changed from the inside on out? Do you have the mentality that says, surely I'm good with God because of all the good things I'm I'm doing in this life? Look at who I am. Look at how great I am. Or do you understand that the only reason you're right with God is because of what he's done? And are you looking to him and trusting in the person and work of Christ alone for your salvation? Are you like the the proud Pharisee? Or have you come to God humbly like the tax collector who pleaded for mercy? Up to this point in your life, you're here and you've just been dependent upon you for your right standing with God. I pray this morning you come to the end of that. And you see that your best efforts fall infinitely short of God's perfect standard. What he has, you cannot earn. What he has, you cannot buy. You got to lay it all down. You got to simply cling to Christ. You have to turn from your life of sin and look to him and trust in him alone for your salvation to be saved. And if you've never made that decision, I pray you would before we leave here today. Let's pray.